The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the sixth day of our seven day summer session. It's the 10th of January 2020. And we're going to continue with um, the collected works of Chinol translated and with an introduction by Robert E. Buswell Jr. Continuing with uh, passages from Straight Talk on the True Mind. And this section is, is headed up the abode of the mind. Question. When the deluded mind is extinguished, the true mind appears. Yet what are the essence and function of the true mind now? Chinul. The sublime essence of the true mind pervades all places. Yung Jia said, It is not separate from this very spot and is constantly still. If you search for it, then you should know that it cannot be found. The Sutras state, It is of the nature of empty space. It is eternally immovable. The Tathagatagarbha, in the Tathagatagarbha, there is no arising or ceasing. I'll just say that one again. It is of the nature of empty space. It is eternally immovable. In the Tathagatagarbha, there is no arising or ceasing. Tafayen said, Everywhere is the way to Bodhi. Everything is a grove of meritorious qualities. This is indeed the abode of the essence. Just this statement here could be the 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 one thing of a lifetime that we that we put into practice. Just to recognize that everywhere is the way to awakening. In acute pain is the way to Bodhi. In loss, in death. In mental illness. Even, even in crime. Crime seen through. The sublime function of the true mind reacts to stimuli and manifests accordingly like the echo in a valley. Fa Tung said, In the past and present, its response has been unfailing. It is certainly present before your eyes. A wisp of cloud 
appears in the valley at evening. A lone stalk descends from a distant sky. Or we could say, a keriru flies up out of the plum tree. A sparrow's chirp. Yuan, a Huayan master of Weifu, said, The Buddha Dharma is present in all your daily activities. It is present during your walking, standing, sitting, and reclining, while drinking tea and eating rice, during conversation and dialogue, and in whatever you do and perform. To stir up your mind and set thoughts in motion is indeed far from being correct. Hence we know that the essence pervades all places and always gives rise to function. But as the presence or absence of the appropriate causes and conditions for its manifestation are uncertain, this sublime functioning is not fixed. It is not that in some cases the sublime functioning is absent. If people who cultivate the mind want to enter the sea of the unconditioned and cross beyond all birth and death, they must not be confused about the abode of the true mind's essence and function. To really understand this essence, to be able to touch it, to know for oneself personally that it's always present, like, like a jewel hidden in the mountain of form. Next section is, is headed, The True Mind Beyond Death. Question. We have heard that people who have seen the nature transcend birth and death. However, all the ancestors of the past had seen the nature, and yet they were all born and then they all died. Nowadays, we see that those who are, who are cultivating the path are born and will die too. How can we leave behind birth and death? <coughs> this is a, f a fair enough question to ask. A lot of people come to Buddhism because of its, its promise to transcend birth and death along with sickness and old age. And yet so-called realized people, people who have seen the nature, get old, they get sick, and they die. This was a big, big um, issue for Master Hakuan as a young man. His faith was, was um, really shaken when he learned about Master Ganto. Ganto was a, a brilliant student of Zen, um, but at a certain point um, his, his monastery got caught up in the chaos that 
that occurred at the end of the Tang Dynasty. And um, the social order broke down, um, there were bandits everywhere, and so the, all the, the monks in Ganto's monastery, or most of them at least, um, left in order to go and hide in the forest away from the, the marauding bandits. But, but Ganto stayed in his monastery doing Zazen in the Zendo. And the story goes that the bandits arrived and they were enraged that there wasn't anything for them to plunder. There was no, there were no um, gold statues or um, other, other items of value. And in their rage at this, they um, ran through Ganto with a sword. And it is said that um, Ganto remained composed, so there must have been witnesses to this, then gave a great shout, said to have been heard for 10 miles around, and then he died. But for, for the young Hakuan, the question here was, why did his spiritual attainments not protect him in this situation? He had somehow imagined that this is what um, realization conferred on one, some kind of invulnerability in this, such, such situations. A, a big motivator for, for Hakuan was something that happened when he was a small child. Um, his mother was a practitioner of uh, uh, Nichiren Buddhism and took him along to a, a temple once where the priest was giving a sermon, a very um, kind of um, uh, fire and brimstone kind of, kind of type of thing, <coughs> describing all the the um, uh, levels and and kinds of hells that one could be could end up in. And Hutton was a very sensitive child, um, and right after this this fire and brimstone sermon, his mother took him to the local public baths and the water in the bath was particularly hot and it sent Hakuan into this into this deep fear of, of falling into the into the into hell. And again, so coming out of this this um, fear he he turned to Buddhism as a way of of um, protecting himself about the, uh, against that ever happening, and so again, probably at least at the start, had quite a literal view of what that meant, being protected protected from hell. And here we see Ganto um, not protected from um, violence. So this question that the questioner asks is, is um, understandable. So he, he asks, how can we leave behind birth and death? 
Chinul. Birth and death are originally non-existent. They exist because of a false notion. Um, one, one teacher wrote, what is born and dies is our sense of self. That's, that's, and that sense of self is a construct. It's a fiction. It's, it's a, a story we tell ourselves about um, the perishing collection, the five skandhas of which we are, are made up. It's a, a fiction, albeit a, a very persistent one. Birth and death are originally non-existent. They exist because of a false notion. It is like a person with diseased eyes who sees flowers in the sky. If a person without the dis this disease says there are no flowers in the sky, the afflicted person will not believe it. But if his disease is cured, the flowers in the sky will vanish naturally and he can then accept that they were non-existent. Although the flowers he sees have not yet vanished, they are in fact still void. It is only the sick man who takes them to be flowers. Their essence does not really exist. In the same way, people wrongly assume that birth and death exist. If a man free of birth and death tells them that birth and death are originally non-existent, they will not believe him. But one morning, if delusion is put to rest and birth and death are spontaneously abandoned, they will realize that birth and death are originally non-existent. It is only when birth and death are not yet ended that, although they do not really exist, they seem to exist because of this uh, false conceptualization. It's all, it's all a matter really of, of point of view. From, from the Earth's point of view, do we, are we born and die as, as, a, as a plant? Gone when it, when it perishes? It's all, from the Earth's point of view, it's all just transformation. As the sutra says, men and women of good family, um, we've been coming across the sutras which has the, this address, form of address and quite a few of the Mahayana sutras um, use it consistently or sometimes it'll be um, phrased as uh, sons and daughters of the Buddha. But the good family here um, doesn't mean that, that um, the Buddha's addressing aristocrats. It means the, the good family of um, being a member of the Sangha. The noble Sangha. To, into who? Yeah, any people of any rank or, or um, 
past, at the time of the Buddha, uh, were welcome. So, men and women of good family, since time immemorial, all sentient beings have been subject to all kinds of inverted views. They are like people who have confused the four directions. They wrongly assume that the four elements are their own bodies. They regard the shadows conditioned by the six sense objects as their own minds. This is like diseased eyes which see flowers in the sky. Yet even if all the flowers in the sky were to vanish from space, it still could not be said that they actually vanished. And why is this? Because they never came into existence in the first place. All sentient beings mistakenly perceive an arising and a ceasing within this non-rising state. For this reason, it is called the revolving wheel of birth and death. So again, it comes back to, to this, this notion of inverted views, not seeing things clearly, seeing them in some sense upside down and back to front. But we can change that inverted view. We can, we can open to a different way of seeing. We can um, see clearly th the way in which our, our sense of separate self is illusory and then our relationship to birth and death change just to give some some um, uh, images for to this um, it's very common for um, masters Buddhist masters to um, leave a death poem express their understanding and and often these these death poems directly reference death not surprisingly this one is from uh, Sung Zhao he's actually pre um, Chan in China he's a very early Chinese monk scholar but he um, got in trouble with the authorities and was sentenced to death. And he requested a re week's reprieve in order to finish some text he was studying. And then he, he submitted himself to the executioner. And this is his, his poem. The four elements essentially have no master. The five shadows are fundamentally empty. The shadows is a way of talking about the five skandhas. The naked sword will sever my head as though cutting through the spring breeze. Beautiful, beautiful image. The, native, the, the naked sword will sever my head as though cutting through the spring breeze. That's how insubstantial he understood himself to be. Just a few more death, phone, death verses. 
This one's from Ryokan, Japanese Zen master, beloved poet. Showing now its front side, now its back, falls the maple leaf. Very, very rich poem for such, such, for three short lines. Showing now its front side, now its back, falls the maple leaf. This one's also a, um, a Japanese one. Tsuki ochite ten o hanarezo. Though the moon sets, it never leaves the universe. This one by Hongzhou. Illusory dreams, phantom flowers, 67 years. A white bird vanishes in the mist. Autumn waters merge with the sky. And finally, one from Ikkyu, again Japanese. I shan't die. I shan't go anywhere. I'll be here. But don't ask me anything. I shan't answer. Quite a similar one from, um, from India, from Ramana Maharshi, the great... Um, 20th century Indian sage. He was dying of cancer and um, the wailing of his many followers um, reached him into his room from outside and he asked one of his carers, why do they despair? His attendant said, it's because you're leaving them, Master. And Ramana is said to have turned to his attendant and said, where do they think I could go? Chinor continues, according to the text of this sutra, we can be sure that if we have a penetrating awakening to the true mind of complete enlightenment, then, as originally, there is no birth and death. We know now that there is no birth and death, but still we cannot liberate ourselves from birth and death because our practice is imperfect. As it says in the texts, Ambapali once asked Manjushri, I can understand that birth is actually the unborn dharma, but why then am I still 
unable? Why am I still subject to the flow of birth and death? Manjushri answered, It is because your power is still insufficient. It is because your power is still insufficient. The mountain master Chin asked the mountain master Shu, I understand that birth is actually the unborn Dharma, but why am I still subject to the flow of birth and death? Shu replied, Bamboo shoots eventually become bamboo, but can you use them now to make a raft? It's a very um, helpful image of of uh, the difference between uh, understanding something intellectually and realizing it personally. So just the bamboo shoots coming up out of the ground, tender, large shoots, sometimes used as a food, um, are this conceptual understanding that we have, plus our faith in that understanding. The f a fully grow grown um, piece of bamboo, strong, rigid, is realization, experience. You can't make a raft out of bamboo shoots. You have to allow those shoots to grow, to, to um, evolve into the strong, tall bamboo. We have some fine examples of, of such bamboo right outside the zendo. Bamboo shoots eventually became, become bamboo, but can you use them now to make a raft? Accordingly, to know that there is no birth and death is not as good as to experience that there is no birth and death. To experience that there is no birth and death is not as good as to be in conformity with the birthless and the deathless. To be in conformity with the birthless and the deathless is not as good as to make use of the birthless and deathless. People nowadays do not even know that there is no birth and death, let alone experience, be in conformity with, or make use of the birthless and deathless. It is, is it not only natural then that people who assume there really is birth and death would not be able to believe in the birthless and deathless Dharma? So here in this in this passage, Chinul describes these these um, deepening states of mastery from from the, the, just the initial sense of understanding this and having faith in it that there there is the birthless and the deathless through kind of passively coming into line with such a, um, a teaching, then actively engaging with it, living out of it, you could say. One of the um, paradoxes of um, 
our coming to understand this um, is that we we actually go have to go through a kind of death to really understand that there's no birth and death. There's there's this saying. Um, If you die before you die, you don't die when you die. And this, this dying before you die is, is a reference to um, the great death, the, the death that, that is um, integral to um, spiritual unfolding, our... our um, evolution, our awakening. Death of the small self. And so if, if we want to go, if we want to um, see into the nature, the, the deathless and birthless nature of things, we have to face death. And this is actually where the freedom of the masters comes from this, having done this. To, of course, one dies and and is reborn. This is a theme. It's a that goes through um, many of the spiritual traditions. Um, many of uh, Rumi's poems. Uh, talk about this very, very vividly, <laughs> using different um, analogies. Here's one example. It's called gnats inside the wind. So gnats, these uh, tiny little insects that you sometimes see hanging in the sky in clouds um, on a in, in the spring. Some gnats came from the grass to speak with Solomon. Oh, Solomon, you are the champion of the oppressed. You give justice to the little guys, and they don't get any littler than us. We are tiny metaphors for frailty. Can you defend us? Who has mistreated you? Our complaint is against the wind. Well, says Solomon, you have pretty voices, you gnats, but remember, a judge cannot listen to just one side. I must hear both litigants. Of course, of course, agree the gnats. Summon the east wind, calls out Solomon, and the wind arrives immediately. What happened to the gnat plaintiffs? <laughs> Gone! Such is the way of every seeker who comes to complain at the High Court. When the presence of God arrives, where are the seekers? First there's dying, then union, like gnats inside the wind. Another, another one, and here he's, he's pulling on the, the imagery uh, 
throughout Sufism of um, spiritual practitioner as a lover of the truth, a lover of of the beloved. And this can sometimes be a very helpful way to work with uh, one's koan. It's because, of course, the, the lover and beloved seek union, seek to lose each other in each other, lose themselves in each other, we should say. This one's called the Sunrise Ruby. In the early morning hour, just before dawn, lover and beloved wake and take a drink of water. She asks, do you love me or yourself more? Really, tell the absolute truth. He says, there's nothing left of me. I'm like a ruby held up to the sunrise. Is it still a stone? or a world made of redness. It has no resistance to sunlight. The ruby and the sunrise are one. Another one uh, called quietness. Inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You are covered with thick cloud. Slide out the side. Die and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you have died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. We can be very attached to our internal talking. In fact, that's what we, we maintain our sense of self with. Our, our opinions and, and positions and uh, things we hold to be right and true. You are covered with thick cloud. Slide out the side. The slide out the side is like um, floating we were talking about before. Just sidestepping all of that. Die and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you have died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence.
the prospect of of um, dying to the small self can give rise to a lot of anxiety in us. Rumi has instructions for us in this regard. He says, don't let your throat tighten with fear. Take sips of breath all day and night before death closes your mouth. Next section is headed The Primary Practice and Secondary Aids for Realizing the True Mind. Once delusion is brought to rest, as explained previously, the true mind will appear, this is the question. But as long as delusion has not been extinguished, should we use only the no-mind practice to bring delusion to rest, or are there other methods to counteract all delusion? Again, again, this is a, a valid question to ask. Um, these practices that Jinnal described um, of um, no mind um, or the, the or our Zen practice, Shikantaza, koan work, breath, um, these can feel quite quite steep, like like. Um, when are we going to get there? And they are steep. Um, in some senses, Zen, Zen is, is taking the steep way up the mountain, heading just up the steep slope, not doing, not doing the zigzag thing. As we can recall Bodhidharma's, um, or the words attributed to Bodhidharma for the Zen school, deep pointing to the human heart, seeing the nature and becoming a Buddha. It sounds pretty steep. It is pretty steep, becoming a Buddha. So this questioner here, he's asking, well, um, what about, yeah, okay, that eventually I'll see into, into through my, all my delusions and everything, but what about in the meantime? What as long as delusion has not been extinguished? Should I only use those practices or should, is there some other methods to counteract my delusions? Chunal replies, The primary practice and secondary aids are not the same. To extinguish delusion with no mind is the primary practice. To train in all wholesome actions is the secondary aid. It is like a bright mirror which is covered with dust. Even though we rub it with the hand, we still need a good polish to make it lustrous. Then and only then will its brightness manifest. 
The dust is defilement. The force of the polishing hand is the practice of no mind. The polish is all the wholesome actions. The shine of the mirror is the true mind. And if you remember here, he was talking about a time when, when mirrors were made of metal, so they would actually tarnish. As it is said in the awakening of faith, Furthermore, faith accomplishes the activation of bodhicitta. Uh, bodhicitta is this, um, this aspiration um, to awaken in order to help others awaken. So it's, it's, it's the aspiration to engage in service training through, through in, in service that is also our training to awaken. A service in which helping others is intrinsic to our own unfolding, I could say. So, furthermore, faith accomplishes the activation of bodhicitta. What mind does it activate? Briefly, there are three kinds. What are the three? The first is the straight mind, which is right attention to the Dharma of true suchness. The second is the deep mind which accumulates all wholesome practices. The third is the mind of great compassion which aims to eradicate the sufferings of all sentient beings. So just to have a look, a closer look at these three. The first is the straight mind, which is right attention to the Dharma of true suchness. So that's the one that equates with the practice of, of no mind. We could also say here upright mind. This upright mind is expressed in our posture. Um, he says, straight mind, which is right attention. This posture we take is, is the most conducive one that is to paying attention, to turning the light of the mind back on itself, or, or tracing back the radiance, as Jinnal says elsewhere. So it's the primary thing, the right attention to the Dharma of true suchness. The second is the deep mind, which accumulates all wholesome practices. So um, the deep mind, we could say this is the one, the mind that appreciates um, the law, law of cause and effect. How things unfold, how action and reaction shape things. So not only on a personal level, but also societal across time and space. So this is the, the, the practice which, which sees that, sees into um, how we relate to each other and how we affect each other. The third is the mind of great compassion, which aims to eradicate the sufferings of all sentient beings. 
our, our practice isn't really complete without this element, the element where we see that we can't really be truly at rest as long as there are beings who suffer. Question. You have explained the one sign of the Dharma Dhatu and the non-duality of the Buddha essence. Why do we not simply recollect true suchness instead of contriving to train in all the wholesome practices? I said, so now he's kind of taking, take, taking the tack of, well, why not just our primary practice? Answer. And he, he is kind of starting to repeat himself a bit, but answer. The mind is like a large money gem, a jewel. Its essential nature is luminous and transparent, but it is tainted by the impurities of the ore. If a person merely imagines the essence of this gem, but does not polish it in various ways with expedience, it will never become transparent. In the same way, the essential nature of the Dharma of true suchness, which is inherent in sentient beings, is void and clear, but it is stained by incalculable defilements and impurities. Sometimes either referred to as um, adventitious defilements. Adventitious just means um, uh, created by causes and conditions, not intrinsic, and that's an important point. Anything that comes and goes is not intrinsic to us. If a person only imagines that, that true suchness, but fails to develop her mind in various ways by training and expedience, it too will never get clean, this is the jewel. As the impurities are incalculable and pervade all dharmas, she cultivates all wholesome practices in order to counter counteract them. If a person practices all wholesome dharmas, they will naturally return to harmony with the Dharma of true suchness. So in this, um, in this passage, Junal is, is um, touching on what was to be a sort of central theme of all his teaching was um, that we, we could have these sudden insights into the truth, um, but even after having those insights, this continual cultivation um, of, of um, purifying our impurities had to, had to keep going, to bring a whole being into line with the, the, the insight that we can have. According to this explanation, bringing the deluded mind to rest is the primary practice and cultivating all wholesome dharmas is the secondary aid.
So our job in Sesshin, as we go into our our final 24 hours, is to is to go as much as possible in the direction of realizing that which we have faith in, of of going from um, the abstract to the concrete, the the imagined to the directly experienced, the the vague or the or the general to the specific, the particular. What is Mu right now, in this moment, as we sit in the Zendo? What is this? And this. And this. What is it as we sit listening to these words? What is it when we're doing kinhin? What is it when we make ourselves a cup of tea? The, the, the radiance of true suchness is right before us. We just have to keep turning toward it. Which actually is a, is a no turning. So how can you turn to something that's everywhere? It's more, we could say, that we turn away from delusion, from the inner voice that, that constructs our notion of separation, our alienation are holding back from life. <coughs> our prickles, our defences, our armour. <coughs> Turning away from all of that and opening up instead to the beloved. to the one who holds us in her arms. Tangan Roshi would say, throw yourself into the arms of the Buddha.
We'll stop here and recite the four vows. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.